Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, January 26th, 2010. Oh, yeah, I just love it when I trip over my own tongue. Yeah. As always, we got a very interesting program ahead. Chock full of interesting stuff. Because, well, this is an interesting program. Interesting may not be a good way of putting it, though. Thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. Think of it this way. There seems to be a rash of, uh, well, let's say the, the body of Christ right now seems to seriously be lacking, well, an immune system. White blood cells, if you would. And so this is a program that infuses a daily dose of biblical white blood cells into the body of Christ uh, with the hope and goal of fighting the bizarre and crazy errors that just seem to be... Uh, well, growing like all kinds of mold and fungus within the biblical church. And so uh, my goal is to really help y equip you to be a white blood cell, if you would, and to think biblically and to think critically and to learn how to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the word of God. And, of course, the real the real accent I'm trying to grind, the, re the, the real opportunity that I'm looking for every day is to tell you about Jesus Christ and to tell you that no matter what you've done, no matter what sin that you've committed, and you know that you have committed some pretty heinous and grievous sins in your lifetime, Christ died for those. Jesus Christ died on the cross to propitiate God's wrath and to atone for your sins, and his blood covers all of that wretched, wicked, nasty, vile stuff, and that you are pleasing to God because of what Christ has done. Not your own righteousness, not because you've made a decision, all purely because of what Jesus has done for you. Yeah, that, that's really the kind of the axe that I like to grind here. So if, uh, it, in fact, if you uh, are tempted to send me a speaking engagement uh, invitation, uh, keep in mind, I don't charge a lot for my speaking inv engagements. And uh, also keep in mind that... Uh, what I'm really looking for is an opportunity to preach the gospel. That's that, <laughs> that's what I live for, man. Anyway, okay, so today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Uh, yesterday, I didn't get a chance to uh, read that article, that satirical piece uh, regarding uh, uh, a proposal regarding temple prostitution. We're going to get to that today, but I'm going to sandwich it in strategically within the uh, 
the program here today. And so first first off, we got a story from The Guardian in the U.K. talking about evangelical uh, U.S. megachurches like Saddleback are market-driven and transcendence is not on the menu. That would be God himself. <laughs> and uh, and then I want you to hear uh, some audio from Andy Stanley and Craig Groeschel. They're going to be speaking at uh, a one-day Catalyst conference in Chicago uh, in, in basically, I think, in the early part of March. And uh, see if you can make heads or tails of what these two are saying. And keep in mind, Doug Paget himself on this very radio program last week made it clear that he recruited Andy Stanley and Craig Groeschel to be part of the emergent postmodern Gen X uh, conversation. And, uh, and so uh, they have some loose ties, if you would, loose affiliations uh, with the uh, seeker-driven uh, emergent church movement. And uh, and keep, they were recruited by Doug Paget. And then we're going to be listening to uh, uh, some audio from uh, Jay Baker preaching a sermon in a uh, in an African American congregation, basically uh, making his plea for uh, you know accepting homosexual marriage. And um, and then let's see, we're we're going to segue into that from the to the Temple Prostitution uh, article. And then if we have time, that, that I've got probably more than I have the ability to um, get to today. Uh, we'll be uh, reading an article from Albert Muller uh, talking about air conditioning hell and uh, and how uh, and how liberalism happens because uh, that's what we're really dealing with in the seeker driven, purpose driven, emergent church movement. All of that is liberalism. It's a form of it. And so, uh, and then to round out the program today, we have a good sermon. A good sermon. Yeah, after the the bad sermons that we've been reviewing lately, I need something good. And uh, you probably need something good, too. And so we've got, uh, this will be the first time I'm going to be reviewing a sermon by Pastor Stephen Parks of University Hills Lutheran Church in Denver, Colorado. And uh, the name of the sermon is Do Not Fear, Only Believe. It is based upon the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. We will be reading those prior to... uh, those verses prior to listening to the sermon and what we're going to be listening for our proper distinction of law and gospel and is Christ and him crucified for our sins presented as the solution to whatever problem that uh, Pastor Parks identifies uh, is in this text. So lots of stuff to cover. Hope that you make yourself comfortable. Fuzzy bunny slippers if you are in the chilly, snowy Midwest like I am. You know, over the weekend it was in the 50s. It was in the 50s. And now there's like, you know, two inches of snow on the ground and it's cold outside. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, this, the Midwest is a very interesting place to live, by the way. Anyway, so uh, fuzzy bunny slippers are okay. And uh, if you're in a cold climate, uh, those of you down in Australia, New Zealand, you're in the middle of summer right now. Forget about it. It's not happening. No fuzzy bunny slippers for you. And, uh, you know, <laughs> and of course, if you'd like to uh, enjoy an adult beverage while listening to Fighting for the Faith, we do not have a problem with that. Uh, keep in mind, though, drunkenness is a sin, and uh, therefore, uh, you know, drink responsibly, if you would, and uh, don't go be above and beyond what Jesus himself would drink, and keep in mind, Jesus was a drinker. All right, um, with that, we're going to uh, dive into our program proper, which means I have to uh, <clears throat> cue this up here. From The Guardian in the U.K., Headline reads, Evangelical U.S. megachurches like Saddleback are market-driven with transcendence, not on the menu. This is by He Baber uh, from The Guardian in the U.K., H.E. Baber, and uh, the article reads as such, 
Uh, last Sunday, we drove up to Rick Warren's Saddleback Church in Orange County, a collection of affluent politically conservative suburbs south of Los Angeles. The model of a modern megachurch, Saddleback boasts over 112,000 unchurched occasional attenders, as well as 22,800 active Members, um, mainly initiated in the temperature-controlled baptismal pools on its uh, 120-acre campus. Yeah, I, one thing I don't think I've ever talked about this is that uh, um, I, <laughs> if a, a pastor would come out of town to uh, visit uh, Orange County, uh, a Lutheran pastor, or had never been there and I was at lunch with them or in some meeting with them, I used to give uh, uh, tours of Saddleback Church. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Uh <laughs> I would take pastors from out of town and take them to Saddleback just so that they can see this place. Anyway, um, it, it, rather impressive. It's it, in fact the, the the campus there is more like a a, a, a resort like inner uh, like Disneyland or Disney World. That's probably the better way to describe it. Uh, Mega churches. This is an interesting statement. I highlighted this one, uh, you know, and I uh, read it. Listen to this. Mega churches are market driven. Let me read that sentence again. Mega churches are market driven they study demographic data and plan marketing schemes tailored to their local target audiences let me read that again mega churches are market driven they study de- they study demographic data and plan marketing schemes tailored to their local mar- uh, target audiences the off-sited example of a target profile developed by Rick Warren is Saddleback Sam who is a well-educated young urban professional he is interested in health and fitness, but is overextended in time and money and is stressed out. He carries a lot of debt, especially due to the price of his home. He is married to Samantha, and they have two kids, Steve and Sally. Judging from Saddleback's promotional literature, Sam and Samantha have an insatiable appetite for therapy and self-improvement. Saddleback offers a generic Celebrate Recovery program and customized support groups for ADD adults, diabetics in God, families with uh, incarcerated loved ones, and victims of other ills. Apparently, um, they don't offer anything to sinners who need a savior. Uh, We entered the worship center, an immense auditorium shell where Warren was preaching from a stage at the front where an altar might have been. Saddleback assiduously avoided traditional churchy architecture, custom uh, costume and decor. Its campus was relentlessly, uh, this is an interesting word, Quotidian. I, I, I'm not even pronouncing that, Q-U-O-T, Quotidian, uh, I-D-I-A-N, designed to suggest the shopping malls and office parks where members spent their time during the week. Warren described Saddleback's program for spiritual growth with numbered headings. Spiritual growth, he explained, was one, a lifelong process. Two, measured by obedience. Let me, boy, that's interesting. Spiritual growth is, quote, measured by obedience. That's pietism, folks. Um, three, based on God's word, and four, would set me free. Really, so my obedience is what sets me free? Not Christ and his cross, but my measured obedience? Hmm. Um, free from what? Free from habits, hurts, hangups, and painful memories, worries, bitterness, and guilt. How about sin? How would I achieve that? According to Warren, Jesus had the plan. At Saddleback, he assured us we would learn to follow his plan systematically, sequentially, and in a process through the classes Saddleback offered. 
Wow. Yeah, where's the cross again? Jesus apparently has a plan for you, but it's for you to follow, not his plan to save you through his death on the cross. Uh, This is the future of middle-class U.S. Christianity, according to the latest American Religious Identification Survey. If the trend identified in the ARA study continues, we will see a country divided between conservative evangelical Christians and secular liberals. Uh, the latter hostile to religious belief, identified with evangelical Christianity. This is bad news because popular evangelical Christianity is religiously vacuous. <laughs> that is absolutely correct. Current popular evangelical Christianity is religiously vacuous. It is directed to secular ends, which arguably should be promoted by secular means. Saddleback is religion for people who don't like religion. Transcendence is not even on the menu. Although most, uh, almost half of Americans say they have a religious experience, mysticism is likely a, a, a recondite taste for the minority who have that taste, who seek God as an object of contemplation. Saddleback has nothing. Evangelical and mainline churches promote activism and are contemptuous of navel-gazing. However, i got to tell this uh, you know, to um, uh, the, the gal who wrote this article, that's all about to change because Saddleback at their upcoming Radicalis Conference, will be promoting uh, uh, Roman Catholic monastic mysticism, basically repackaged by uh, Pete Scazzaro in in the form of what he calls emotionally healthy spirituality. Emotionally healthy spirituality is Trappist mysticism repackaged for the purpose-driven set. You can think of it, as, you know, they, I keep referring it to the, as this way, postmodern Pentecostalism. That's what this, this, all this rage of the Lectio Divina, the prayer examine, uh, the daily offices and all this kind of stuff. It's, it is a purpose-driven Pentecostalism uh, for the postmodern set. The idea here is, is that the, the, if we, when you think of Pentecostalism, uh, especially if you live in the southern part of the United States, what comes to mind are people rolling over the pews, barking like dogs, handling snakes, speaking in tongues, you know, doing all, you know, laughing and letting it bubble up from your belly, all that kind of bizarre, weird stuff that you see in the Todd Bentley uh, group of people. Well, that Pentecostalism, that kind of mysticism is just off the chain weird and bizarre. And Saddleback Sam would never, ever consider being that kind of Pentecostal. But, see, the new market surveys show that the postmodern version of Saddleback Sam has a desire for spiritual and mystical experiences and wants to experience the transcendent. The thing is, is that he's not really interested in rolling around on the floor, barking like a dog, handling snakes, and speaking in tongues. So they've come up with a brand new version. It's Pentecostalism 2.0, and it's for the Art and Croissant Saddleback Sam Starbucks set. It's Pentecostalism and mystical experiences without all the thorny issues of the weird and bizarre things that go on down in redneck versions of Pentecostalism. So, you know, just want to let you know that, that, that you know, uh, to the gal who wrote this, H.E. B- uh, Babber, that, um, that, that that's coming. Uh, <clears throat> Let's see here. Uh, as a navel gazer, I was depressed by Saddleback. The, apparently the uh, gal who wrote this is a navel gazer. It, it seemed the butt end of Christianity, stripped of history and iconography, wholly immersed in its secular surroundings, Constructed according to a business model and promoted by uh, motivational speakers, bland, cheerful, and dull. 
We drove away past immaculate housing estates and strip malls, iterating chain restaurants and shops replicated in every suburb from coast to coast. I wondered why anyone would want to live in this charmless place, much less to get more of the same at church. Wow, that was quite a hard-hitting article. Okay. Yeah, I kind of wanted the same thing. I could not possibly imagine being part of a church where the history of Christianity was completely missing. That's okay. It's, you know, that's the market that they're shooting for, and they are a, quote, market-driven church. All right, moving along here. Um, over at the Museum of Idolatry, I uh, happen to be the curator of the Museum of Idolatry, if those of you who do not know. Um, and you can visit the Museum of Idolatry at a little11.com. That's a little11.com. I've been working behind the scenes giving both uh, the Museum of Idolatry as well as uh, Extreme Theology, the website, a little bit of a facelift and makeover, if you would, uh, touching things up, you know, from a, uh, from, you know, a, well, a, a good looks kind of standard, aesthetics, if you would. And um, and so, in fact, what I did is I, I changed the tagline for the Museum of Idolatry. It used to say this is what happens when the church abandons, you know, sound biblical t- teaching and stuff like that. Kind of too long. So the the new tagline for the Museum of Idolatry now is Artifacts of Apostasy. I just think that kind of hits it right <laughs> in three words. Boom. What is, what's the Museum of Idolatry? Oh, it's a collection of artifacts of apostasy. Plain and simple. And uh, and uh, just put this one up in the museum. It's audio. It's a YouTube video of Jay Baker preaching at an African American church, and I want you to listen carefully to what Jay Baker says here. Now, if you're not familiar with Jay Baker, he is the son of Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, and this is a guy who I I've met, and I absolutely feel sorry for. And I'll tell you why I feel sorry for him is because uh, he got to see uh, the real nasty underbelly of legalistic Christianity. Part of the reason why he's doing what he's doing is because he saw how there was no mercy and grace and the forgiveness of sins uh, even remotely offered to uh, his family and himself after the whole PTL scandal broke and Jim and Tammy Faye uh, Baker fell from grace. And, uh, you know, Jim Baker ended up spending time in prison. And so part of what he's become is a reaction against what he personally experienced. The problem is, is that he didn't experience biblical Christianity and the freedom that comes and the true and the good news that comes from the biblical gospel of Christ and him crucified for our sins. Instead, Jay Baker has found solace in liberal Christianity, and he runs in emergent circles. He's highly tatted up. He's some kind, you know, and uh, he's very close friends and uh, runs in emergent circles, if you would, close friends with Tony Jones and Doug Paget. In fact, I met him at the Christianity uh, 21 conference, which was put on by the emergent guys, uh, D- Doug Paget and Tony Jones. Nice guy. He's actually kind of shy, and uh, but he had a, a television show um, you know, I think it was what one rebel under God and he has the name of his church is revolution church. And it's in New York city. And I had made plans to go out there and uh, visit that church with a couple of other, uh, people, friends of mine from the internet. We have yet to be able to pull that trip off and I'm hoping we'll be able to get that done before the summer. But anyway, uh, in that, uh, one rebel under God, he, by the way, uh, Jay Baker it calls himself an outlaw preacher and what has he gone to? He's gone to what we call gospel reductionism. And so he hangs in liberal, uh, 
circles and has bought into the gospel reductionism of the ELCA. With that in mind, let's hear his sermon. By the way, the sermon did not go over well in this African-American congregation. And I want you to hear this rhetoric because I think it's really important. So here's Jay Baker speaking about gay marriage. Dream of God. The dream is the vision of community and change happening. You gotta back this. I gotta back this up. You listen carefully. The, the dream of God, a vision and community and change happening. Is any of this biblical language? Here we go. Here's Jay Baker again. Let me back play it again. The dream of God. The dream is the vision of community and change happening. I'll tell you what, you are the temple of God. So in order for us to be able, we can live that dream because the dream is within us. What? We can live that dream because the dream is within us? You are the temple of God. We can live that dream because the dream is within us? Whew, we are freewheeling. And by the way, uh, if you could see the video, if you would like to see the video, it is at the Museum of, of Idolatry. It was posted January 26, 2010. And it's in the wing that the emergent church wing of the uh, of the Museum of Idolatry. So if you, you know, we have people who listen to stuff many you know many moons after we broadcast the program. So just want to let you know, you can actually view the video there. And uh, and so wh- wh- what's he? What is he talking about here? He's freewheeling it, if you would. Uh, he's got an open Bible there in the pulpit, but he's not actually preaching the word. I love speaking here because you got oh yes, holy Jesus. Um, but uh, um, and so often we don't want to change in the church. We don't want to look at things differently, but we can't. We don't want to change in the church. We don't want to view things differently. Hmm. Didn't the Apostle Paul instruct pastors in both the pastoral epistle in all basically the pastoral epistles, First, Second Timothy, Titus? to teach what's in accord with sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. Uh, Christianity isn't about um, embracing change for change's sake. Uh, if we are engaged, if, if we're engaged in a sinful practice or have adopted a false doctrine, yes, we must see things differently and we must change in order to conform our doctrine and our thinking to the word of God. But we just don't change for the sake of change. And if we're practicing things like justice and being gentle, God blesses those who are persecuted because they live for God. Just recently, I had a pastor tell me that he felt that God was against me and that Jesus was against me. He forgot the Holy Spirit, so that's cool. I'm good with him. And that my whole ministry was going to disintegrate and dissolve and be destroyed. Well, and, and the reason is, is because I, I, I came out in the church recently and said, you know what? I don't, I'm pro-gay marriage. He's saying this in the pulpit in an African-American church. And they just, in the video, they just cut to the people in the congregation. I, let me see. Uh, there's got to be several hundred people here. Uh, and I see jaws on the floor i mean the the, sh- the look on their face is like huh? what <laughs> the bible don't teach that i don't believe that that's a sin <laughs> you know i got dang quiet everybody's like i ain't saying wrong now 
Now, <clears throat> he says he doesn't believe that's a sin. What if he's wrong? What if Jay Baker is wrong on this? What if homosexuality is a sin? What if the Bible clearly teaches that if a man has intercourse with another man like a woman or lies with a man as with a woman, that that's an abomination before the Lord? What if the Apostle Paul was right and Jay Baker's wrong, that those who practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of heaven? What if the Apostle Paul was right and not Jay Baker when he said, when he described homosexuality as a degrading sin, uh, basically sent as a punishment from God uh, against those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness? This, we find this in Romans chapter 1. What if Jay Baker's wrong? What if the Bible actually is right and God actually thinks that homosexuality is a sin and is contrary to uh, the way he made us and, and designed us and contrary to uh, what he has for us? And, uh, and what if Jay Baker's wrong? What if the Bible actually is correct in teaching us that all sex outside of a marriage and a marriage is between a man and a woman Jesus himself defined marriage as when a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife. And Jesus was quoting Genesis uh, chapter 2. Right? What if Jesus was actually right about how to define marriage and Jay Baker's wrong? I guess we're not ready for this yet, are we? Cue sappy music. It, it, it's hard for me when people who've been through such persecution and been judged against. Uh, pack your bags. We're going on a guilt trip. Notice he's in a congregation that's full of African-Americans, and now he's basically guilt tripping them. You know, I, you know, you guys have been through so much persecution, and you're just keeping it going. But has he actually opened up the text and made the case from the Bible? That homosexuality isn't a sin? No, he's just put that out and said that I believe that it isn't. All of a sudden, they don't want freedom for anybody else. This isn't about freedom. See, what if Jay Baker's wrong? What if Jay Baker's wrong? What if homosexuality isn't freedom, but instead it is, as the scriptures describe it, as slavery? Sin is slavery. And sin is bondage. It's not freedom to sin. We don't have. We don't want people to be in bondage to sin. We want them to be set free from it. What if he's got this all wrong? You got to start living it, folks. That's why it's a narrow road. That's why it gets quiet in a church where everybody was. Got to start living it. There's the law again. Liberal law to boot. Five minutes ago. So maybe you'll get mad and go home and yell that maybe. Eventually, you'll get over it, and you'll realize that you might not agree with me, but you should learn to love me. Might not agree with you, but we at least you can learn to love me. But see, here, how is he defining love? What if he's wrong in how he's defining love? What if the way love is really defined as you know, it, from a Christian perspective, in light of what Christ has done for us on the cross, and in light of what God has called us to do, that the way we love people is to call them to repent, call them to repent of their sins and receive the forgiveness of sins won by Christ on the cross. Martin Luther King said, it is not the words of your enemies 
that you will remember, but the silence of your friends. Okay, he's quoting not somebody from the Bible, Martin Luther King. That's why I can no longer be silent. He's got tears now. Because I love my friends. Okay, now, I want to point something out here. I think that his tears are absolutely genuine here. He really, truly does love his friends who are enslaved in homosexuality. And he's supposedly a pastor and a preacher of the gospel. The thing is, is that biblical love, the love that we're called to love our friends and serve them is with the truth. And not to shave the truth or change the truth in order to conform to somebody's sinful behavior. I have a brother-in-law who is practicing open homosexual. I have friends from high school who are practicing homosexuals. I love them. I have no problem being in their presence, nor am I even remotely uncomfortable when I'm around them. But I love them enough to tell them the truth. I love them enough to not leave them in slavery to sin. And to not offer them the hope of freedom from their sin through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. We must love our homosexual neighbors. And the way we do so according to what God's word instructs us is to lovingly and boldly Proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. So I believe that Jay Baker does love his homosexual friends, and I believe that Jay Baker has experienced the worst of that legalistic pietism has to throw at a person, and he has experienced the pain and suffering from a bunch of legalists who have called him and his family all kinds of names. But what he needs and what his homosexual friends need is the love of Christ through the cross and his shed blood on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins. Jay, I love you, man. And I hope that you'll repent of your false doctrine and see the bigger view of love and understand that you're not right on the way you've defined love here. And even though it's understandable that you've come to this conclusion, it's not grounded in Scripture. Look deeper in God's Word, because even Jesus himself calls us to repent, calls us to repent, and doesn't want us to stay in slavery to sin, death, and the devil, but through his shed blood on the cross has set us free from that, and that we, if we're going to love homosexuals, we must proclaim freedom and forgiveness of sins, including sins of homosexuality, won by Christ and his bloody, beaten body on a cross. We're up on our first break. If you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> service. This is Josh. How can I help you today? Yes, I would like the return that Jesus I received from you. I heard there was a 60-day return policy. Yes, sir, there is. But can I ask you why you want to return Jesus? Well, I was told if I received Jesus, he'd fix all my problems. And quite honestly, I'm not satisfied with this Jesus. Sir, what is your Jesus doing right now? Nothing. He just sits there. Have you taken time to feed your Jesus? Well, I went to church for the preaching, but nothing has happened. Sir, if you read the fine print on the warranty, you'll see that you are responsible for feeding, not the church or the pastor. Oh. Well, can I exchange this Jesus for another? Sir, what kind of Jesus are you looking for? I need the Jesus that forgives sins. You know, changes your life on the inside, helps you overcome the sins of the flesh, never leaves me nor forsakes me, and will take me to heaven when I die. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. We don't stock that Jesus here. You'll have to go somewhere else to have that Jesus. Well, I guess I'll just stick with the one I got since I already opened the box. Wonderful, sir. Can I interest you in getting Jesus for your friends and family? Why would I do that? Pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheap O Air. Yeah, I, I know the name doesn't sound real, but let me assure you it is. Cheap O Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheap O Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world and also has a lowest airfare guarantee for the winter. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that is good through January 25th. That Wait, stop. No, it's good through February 15th. That's right. Cheapo Air has updated their promo code and extended it now to February 15th. Back to this commercial as previously scheduled will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. We're back. Hey, 
warning. We love you by telling you the truth here at Fighting for the Faith. All right, this is the part where I try to convince you all to support Fighting for the Faith by financially supporting what we do here. That's right. This is that segment, that segment that you're tempted to fast forward through. But don't, don't do it. Right now, in the month of January, if you join the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew, there is an anonymous contributor who will triple your January uh, membership fee due, if you would. It's By the way, it's only $6.95 a month to be a member of the Fighting for the Faith Fi- Pirate Christian Radio crew. If you haven't done this, then you need to do so. Our goal really here is to get to 1,000 members of our crew. And by getting there, it ensures that on a monthly basis, we have the minimum that we need to operate. Once we hit that goal, well, then I'm going to start crying and begging that uh, <laughs> for more contributions so that we can get a little bit of part-time help here at Pirate Christian Radio so that from time to time I could take a day off or something like that. Anyway, that's a whole nother story. Anyway, if you haven't joined the crew, you need to do so. The way you do it is by visiting fightingforthefaith.com and click on Join our crew. You can't miss it. It's a big yellow button there. It's a friendly yellow button. Click on it. It's a mere $6.95. And pay close attention because at the final screen there after joining the crew, there's a button that says click here for information to access our Pirate Cove, which is a growing treasure trove of theological resources designed to help you grow deeper in God's Word, uh, sound biblical theology, Christ-centered apologetics. It's just great stuff there. And uh, it, it, it'll take you a long time to catch up on all the reading if you haven't joined yet. So you, it'll take you a while to wander through the uh, the cove and all the treasures that we have there. And I'm adding new stuff regularly. So, again, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on Join Our Crew, of course, if you'd like to donate uh, a flat amount of money above and beyond $6.95. You can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, so that we just got done listening to Jay Baker. Um, well, that wasn't exactly waxing eloquent. It wasn't even a biblical plea that he gave, you know, and as to why he supports gay marriage. It was just his opinion, and that opinion was preached from a Christian pulpit. Now, one of the things we've covered here at Fighting for the Faith is uh, is basically taking the uh, liberal hermeneutic, if you would, if you can even call it that, and uh, comparing it to the clear teachings of the Word of God as it comes to uh, these liberal denominations that are supporting gay marriage. Well, what we find out is is that um, when you compare what these pe- people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God, we find that their hermeneutic is wrong. And I'm a firm believer that satire and humor are a great way uh, using what's known in uh, logic terms as a reductio ad absurdum uh, to demonstrate the uh, complete um, nonsensical uh, arguments of people when they twist God's word, liberals being one of my favorite people to do that with. That being the case, I come across a uh, piece by Peter Speckard, of, uh, who's the associate editor of a, uh, well, what's the name of this group? Hang on a second here. I've got to make sure I give him right attribution uh, the the name of the uh, group that he writes for is um, the American Lutheran Publicity Bureau, and they have a, 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 a publication they put out called the Forum Letter. And uh, back in October, November, he put together this satirical piece that just completely wrecks and exposes 
the uh, liberal arguments for homosexual marriage for what they are, a complete twisting of God's word. Now, I need to warn you all, those of you who have small children, this particular satirical piece involves discussion of the topic of prostitution. And uh, as a result of it, may not be appropriate for littler ears. So I just warn you ahead of time, this would be the time to stop the MP3 file and move ahead, if you would, in the uh, in the program. If not, then we continue. The, the name of the piece is called Temple Prostitution, A Modest Proposal. And uh, by Peter Speckard of the uh, Forum Letter, we read, Ahem. Every now and then, a new way of looking at things not only solves a problem, but opens up unexpected opportunities for that one solution to lead to a whole host of related solutions. The recent decision of the ELCA regarding homosexuality solved the problem faced by gay couples seeking church weddings. But even better, the new way of looking at the issue could solve several more perennial problems in the church with one grand uh, innovation. Here are the problems that we are facing. Uh, What are the biggest problems, practical uh, and theological, that Lutheran churches in America face today? I would submit the following. One, uh, the inability to retain or reach out to young, single people, especially men. Think about it. On a typical Sunday, a typical Lutheran church, now uh, many 28-year-old, how many 28-year-old single men are sitting in the pews? How might we draw them in? What are their felt needs? Two, failure to use the gifts of of the laity. Sure, it's easy to use the gifts of creative, educated, energetic, talented people, but many Christians are none of those things. Uh, like the little drummer boy, they, they have not much to offer. But if they sincerely, humbly, and faithfully offer whatever gifts they have been given, shouldn't they expect their offering to meet the approval of their God? Three, declining revenue. Especially in a tough in a tough economy, we need new and creative ways to raise money. If we were adequately going to fund critical ministries such as feeding the hungry or blanketing Africa with condoms, um, for legalism, we can't uh, we can't be a gospel centered church with a do this and don't do that mentality. Legalism, a focus on rules and moralistic preaching, have always been threatened have always threatened the freedom of the gospel. Biblicism, this is another problem. Too often we use selective proof text merely to maintain traditional opinions rather than really listening to the Spirit. Number uh, Next one, irrelevance. Uh, we need to address the real social needs in and of the world as it exists around us, not as it supposedly was in the 1950s or how we might m- wish that it were. We must face the joyful challenges of today. Next Worship without impact. Too often our worship is only a matter of words and music rather than an expression of radical freedom that encompasses the whole person. Now, uh, the solution to all of this, imagine that all those problems, uh, all those problems solved with one simple innovation. The answer, temple prostitution. Yeah, I I know, I know. Outrageous and offensive. I can hear readers already just... Uh, dismissing the idea out of hand. And I admit that we may not be ready for it quite yet, but please hear me out on this. First of all, let's address the common objections. Sure, there are a handful of Bible verses that might seem to condemn the practice, but all the condemnation of temple prostitution involves pagan practices or worship of false gods. The objectionable thing is the idolatry not the physical act itself. 
sanctified, faithful prostitution in service of the true God is a new thing. The biblical writers never foresaw or contemplated sanctified, faithful, God-pleasing prostitution in the churches, and thus they never wrote about it. Attempts to find a biblical injunction against the practice, therefore, fall short. Secondly, there's, there's not, let's not cherry pick verses selectively. We don't, we don't stone disobedient children to death. We don't refrain from pork or sodomy merely because this or that verse says that we should. We have to look at the whole biblical witness in light of the freedom we have in Christ. For example, God ordered Hosea to marry a prostitute. Such biblical precedent offers interpretive nuances uh, to seemingly black and white prohibitions. Thirdly, Jesus himself seemed to have a soft spot for prostitutes. Many reputable scholars today think that he may have been married to one. And Jesus showed radical inclusivity. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah, yeah, this is exactly all of their arguments just put in a different context. <clears throat> Sorry. <clears throat> and Jesus showed radical inclusivity, breaking taboos by hanging out with prostitutes. So he would want us to celebrate and affirm their prostitution and give them a venue for making it their vocation, a way of serving God by serving man selflessly and with their whole being. Fourthly, some primarily Lutheran nations in Scandinavia have already legalized prostitutions. Left-hand kingdom legalities need not stand in the way of general idea of sanctified, faithful, God-pleasing, church-sponsored prostitution. Now, science tells us, lastly, the, the idea that uh, church prostitution would, co- would cause any harm has been put to rest by a host of studies. The opportunity for a woman to explore her sexuality in a controlled church environment uh, surely beats the back street or back alley. She would have the mutual trust of knowing her client is a fellow faithful Christian. There would be proper testing, protecting, and hygiene standards in suitable sterilized environments. And what she uh, and what she might have done in service to the devil, the world, and her own sinful nature, she would now do in service to God, whom we serve by serving our fellow man. Wow. <laughs> This is almost argued way too well. Um, <clears throat> let me continue reading. And for the client, there are similar advantages. Think of the number of single males who would have been who would be saved from living a lie concerning their deepest emotional and psychological desires. The plain fact is that most of the unmarried men in the congregation are sexually attracted to women. Right now, their cruel alternatives are to deny those urges and live a lie, carry out those urges in secretive and destructive ways, or leave the church because their desires are not welcomed and affirmed. But with temple prostitution available, they could avoid dangerous, destructive behavior, help the church raise money, use the gift of sexuality in a God-pleasing way, and sit in the pew focusing on spiritual things without all that pent-up desire and frustration getting in the way. So there are no valid objections to sanctified, faithful, God-pleasing prostitution in the churches apart from tradition and conservative morality, which are surely trumped by love. 
Furthermore, even if there are some controversial points, they do not touch the heart of the gospel. This plan does not eliminate John 3.16. It exposes more people to John 3.16 on Sunday, or more likely the Saturday night service. And if there is some biblicist objections that such behavior could be considered immoral according to tradition and puritanical mores, well, everyone is a sinner, right? Salvation by grace through faith says that nothing specifically about prostitution, right? And Jesus never explicitly addressed the issue either. Do we think we're saved by proper sexual behavior? I think not. Nor are we saved by our interpretations of a few non-gospel-related verses of the Bible. Man, this is argued too well. (laughs) Now, think of the benefits this program would attract. The very demographic we have had such a hard time reaching. Young men. It would end our fiscal woes. Think of the money we could raise to feed the hungry. Or do you want them to starve because of your Puritan hang-ups? It would also provide a teaching opportunity against the old heresy that the body is evil. God made us perfectly natural sex, made us with perfectly natural sexual urges. Why are you so hung up on sex? The law is fulfilled in Christ and we are free gospel-centered people. We can serve Christ via sanctified, faithful, God-pleasing, church-sponsored, prostitution. There you have it. By the way, if you'd like to read this in its entirety, um, it, it's at a uh, website entitled firstthings.com, firstthings.com, and it's on their blog, and you can do a search there. The name of it is Temple Prostitution, A Modest Proposal. Yeah, I think that kind of gets to the heart of the matter, don't you? Um the same exact arguments that the uh, they're using for embracing homosexuality can now be applied to temple prostitution without the, i mean seriously i think these uh, this this piece itself i mean it sounds like it was written by taking uh, some liberal elca um theologian's argument and just exchanging the word homosexuality or homosexual marriage with temple prostitution i mean that's how silly it is yeah <clears throat> Yeah, by the way, uh, how long do I give the ELCA before they actually put this forward as a valid uh, proposition and proposal there within the ELCA? No longer than five years. Yeah, no long, no longer than five. Not only will they be blessing you know, at, uh, homosexual marriages, they will be engaging in temple prostitution as a result of that particular piece. <clears throat> All right, talking about liberalism. Um, I'm going to get to the Andy Stanley and Groeschel uh, uh, audio after the first, after the second break. So uh, I'll push that to the second break. Uh, Al Mohler has a piece. In fact, this is a, an article that he's written as part of a, a basically a, a collection of articles published by the Nine Marks website uh, against liberalism. A kind of a star-studded, uh, reformed cast of writers, if you would, uh, tackling the problem of liberalism today. And uh, Al Mohler's piece is particularly poignant, and so I thought I would read it to you. The name of the article is Air Conditioning Hell, How Liberalism Happens. And by the way, how liberalism happens is exactly the way it happens, uh, it, what we saw with the emergent church and how it came about. You begin, you basically want to change the, think that you can change the message to make it appealing to the culture. That's what always starts liberalism. But here's uh, Al Mohler on this. He says, theological liberals do not intend to destroy Christianity Uh, but to save it. As a matter of fact, theological liberalism is motivated by what may be described as an apologetic motivation. 
the pattern of theological liberalism is all too clear. Theological liberals are absolutely certain that Christianity must be saved from itself. The classic liberals of the early 20th century, often known as modernists, pointed to a vast intellectual change in the society and asserted that Christianity would have to change or die. Man, where have I heard this before? Christianity has to change or die. I know, I've heard that from Bill Hybels, Rick Warren, and the whole emergent cast. We continue. Let's see here. A historian, William R. Hutchinson, explains, The hallmark of modernism is the insistence that theology must adopt a sympathetic attitude towards secular culture and must consciously strive to come to terms with it. This coming to terms with secular culture is deeply rooted in the sense of intellectual liberation that began in the Enlightenment. Protestant liberalism can be traced to Europe's uh, European sources, but it arrived very early in America, far earlier than most of today's evangelicals are probably aware. Liberal theology held sway where Unitarianism dominated and in, and in many parts beyond. Soon after the American Revolution, more organized forms of liberal theology emerged, fueled by a sense of revolution and intellectual liberty. Theologians and preachers began to question the doctrines of Orthodox Christianity, claiming that doctrines such as original sin, total depravity, divine sovereignty, and substitutionary atonement violated the moral senses. William Ellery Channing, an influential Unitarian, spoke for many in his generation when he described the shock given to my moral nature by the teachings of Orthodox Christianity. Though any number of central beliefs and core doctrines were subjected uh, were subjected to liberal revision or outright rejection, the doctrine of hell was often the, the object of greatest protest and denial. Considering hell and its related doctrines, Congregationalist Pastor Washington Gladden declared, quote, To teach such a doctrine as this about God is to inflict upon religion a terrible injury and to subvert the very foundations of morality. Though hell had been a fixture of Christian theology since the New Testament, it became an odium theologium, (laughs) a doctrine considered repugnant by the larger culture and now uh, retained and and defended only by those who saw themselves as self-consciously orthodox in in theological commitment. Novelist David Lodge uh, dated the final demise of hell to the decade of the 1960s. Quote, at some point in the 1960s, hell disappeared. No one could say for certain when this happened. First it was there and then it wasn't. University of Chicago historian Martin Marty saw the transition as simple uh, and and uh, by the time it actually occurred, hardly observed. Hell disappeared. No one noticed, he asserted. The liberal the- uh, the- theologians and preachers who so conveniently discarded hell did so without denying that the Bible clearly teaches the doctrine. They simply asserted the higher authority of culture's sense of morality. In order to save Christianity from the moral and intellectual damage done by the doctrine of Hell simply had to go. Many rejected the doctrine with gusto, claiming the mandate to update the faith in a new intellectual age. Others simply let the doctrine go dormant, never to be mentioned in polite company again. What of today's evangelicals? Though some lampoon the stereotypical hellfire and brimstone preaching of an older evangelical generation, the fact is that most church members may never have heard a sermon on hell. Even an evangelical congregation. Has hell gone dormant among evangelicals as well? 
Interesting, the doctrine of hell serves uh, very well as a test case for the slide into theological liberalism. The pattern of this slide looks something like this. First, a doctrine simply falls from mention. Over time, it is simply never discussed or presented from the pulpit. Most congregants do not even miss the mention of the doctrine. Those who become uh, those who become fewer over time, the doctrine is not so much denied as ignored and kept at a distance. Yes, it is admitted that the doctrine has been believed by Christians, but it's no longer a necessary matter of emphasis. Second, a doctrine is revised and retained in reduced form. Uh, there must have been some good reason that Christianity historically believed in hell. Some theologians and pastors will then affirm that there is a core affirmation of morality to be preserved. Perhaps something like what C.S. Lewis affirmed as the, the Tao, the, the doctrine is reduced. Third, a doctrine is subjected to a form of ridicule. Robert Schuller of the Crystal Cathedral, known for his messages of possibility thinking, once described his motivation for theological reformulation in terms of refocusing theology on generating trust and positive hope. His method is to point to salvation and the need to become positive thinkers. Positive thinking does not emphasize escape from hell, whatever that means and wherever that is. The statement ridicules hell by dismissing it in such uh, in such terms of whatever that means and whatever it is. Just don't worry about hell, Schuler suggests, uh, though few evangelicals are likely to join in the same form of ridicule. Many will uh, invent softer forms of marginalizing the doctrine. Fourth, a doctrine is reformulated in order to remove its intellectual and moral offensiveness. Evangelicals have subjected the doctrine of hell to the strategy for many years now. Some deny that hell is everlasting, arguing for a form of annihilationism or conditional immorality. Others will deny hell is a state of actual torment. John Wendham simply states, Unending torment speaks of to me of sadism, not justice. Some argue that God does not send anyone to hell and that hell is simply the sum total of human decisions made during earthly lives. God is not really a judge who decides, but a referee who makes certain uh, uh, certain that the rules are followed. Tulsa pastor Ed Gunger uh, recently uh, wrote that, quote, people are not sent to hell, they go there. In other words, God just respects human freedom to the degree that he will reluctantly let humans determine to go to, uh, to hell uh, have their own wish. In recent years, a new pattern of evangelical evasion has surfaced. The Protestant liberals and modernists of the 20th century simply dismissed the doctrine of hell, having already rejected the truthfulness of Scripture. Thus, they did not enter into elaborate attempts to argue that the Bible did not teach the doctrine. They simply dismissed it. Though this pattern is found among some who would claim to be evangelicals, this is not the most common evangelical pattern of compromise. A new apologetic move is now evident among some theologians and preachers who do affirm the inerrancy of the Bible and the essential truthfulness of the New Testament doctrine of hell. This new move is more subtle, uh, to be sure. In this move, the preacher simply says something like this. I regret to tell you that the, that the doctrine of hell is taught in the Bible. I believe it. I believe it because it's revealed in the Bible. It's not up for re renegotiation. We just have to receive it and believe it. I, I do believe it. I, I wish it could be otherwise, but it's not. 
Statements like this reveal a very great deal. The authority of the Bible is clearly affirmed. The, the speaker affirms what the Bible reveals and rejects accommodation. So far, so good. The problem is, is in how the affirmation is introduced and explained in an apologetic gesture. The doctrine is essentially lamented. What does this say about God? What does this imply about God's truth? Can a truth clearly revealed in the Bible be anything less than good for us? This is a great question, because by the way, I got to tell you, I think I'm guilty of doing that. I personally don't like the doctrine of hell. I wish it would go away, but it's there. That's, I've said this before in this program. I don't want anyone to go to hell. It's it's, it's an awful fate. So mm, interesting. I, I got to be careful then how I talk about this, because I firmly believe that people are going to go to hell and that Christ is going to be the one sending them there. You know, <clears throat> anyway, <clears throat> This little, <clears throat> this little piece kind of stabs at me, and I think he's making a good point. I might have to modify my teaching, and I might have to modify the way I, I think about this. Why? Because I think Mueller's right. I think this is what the Bible teaches. All right, so what does this say about God? What does this imply about God's truth? Can a truth clearly revealed in the Bible be anything less than good for us? Well, yeah, that's a good point. The Bible presents the knowledge of hell just as it presents the knowledge of sin and judgment. These are things we had better know. God reveals these things to us for our good and for our redemption. In this, in this light, the knowledge of these things is grace to us. Apologizing for a doctrine is tantamount to impugning the character of God. That's a good point. Do we believe that hell is a part of the perfection of God's justice? If not, we have far greater theological problems than those localized to hell. That's another good point. Yeah, actually, I do believe it's absolutely just. When God sends people to hell, there ain't none of us who's going to be able to point a bony finger at God and say, that's not just. God is not immoral. Several years ago, someone wisely suggested that a good many modern Christians wanted to air condition hell. The effort continues. Remember that liberals and modernists operated out of the of an apologetic motivation. They wanted to save Christianity as a relevant message in the modern world and to remove the odious obstacle of what were seen as repugnant and unnecessary doctrines. They wanted to save Christianity from itself. Today, some in movements such as the emerging church commend the same agenda. And for the same reason, we are embarrassed by the the biblical doctrine of hell. If so, this generation of evangelicals will face no shortage of embarrassments. The current intellectual context allows virtually no respect for Christian affirmations of the exclusivity of the gospel, the true nature of human sin, the Bible's teaching regarding human sexuality, and any number of other doctrines revealed in the Bible. The lesson of the theological liberalism is clear. Embarrassment is the gateway drug for theological accommodation and denial. Be sure of this. It will not stop with the air conditioning of hell. Great peace. Good points. I'm not going to apologize ever again for the doctrine of hell. It's absolutely scriptural. And God is just for sending people there. I think we should just put it that way and and be done with it. (laughs) Not be done with it, but but also proclaim it boldly because it's clearly taught by Jesus. And if Jesus can boldly proclaim the doctrine of hell, I think that we are on good grounds to do so as well. All right, we're up on our second break. When we come back, we're going to listen to a little bit of audio from Andy Stanley and Craig Rochelle, see if you can make heads or tails of it. And then we're going to dive into our good sermon review today. This sermon is entitled, Do Not Fear, Only Believe. It's preached by Pastor Stephen Parks of University Hills Lutheran Church in Denver, Colorado. And it's based upon the Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. You definitely do not want to miss it. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything, 
anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We will be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. February 15th. That's right. Cheapo Air has updated their promo code and extended it now to February 15th. Back to this commercial as previously scheduled. We'll save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Are you tired of lousy service? When you need help with repairs around the house, Angie's List members will help you decide which service companies to trust and which ones to avoid. Kiplinger said Angie's List is a virtual backyard fence with talk about the dry cleaner, the drywaller, and everything in between. With Angie's List, you get access to great local reviews on their website, live support through their call center, the award-winning Angie's List magazine, and access to their complaint resolution team, as well as discounts from highly rated service companies. If you'd like to find out more about Angie's List and their unbiased reviews of service companies and doctors in your area, then call them toll-free at 877-225-0478. Again, that's 877-225-0478. Call Angie's List today, and you'll be done with lousy service forever. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. We're going to be listening to a little bit of audio from a promo video for an upcoming Catalyst conference. Now, if you don't know what Catalyst is, it sounds like a cattle herder conference rather than a shepherding conference. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, maybe that plan words didn't quite work. Anyway, um, Catalyst is a, um, they hold 
two major conferences every year and four conferences total every year. Uh, One on the East Coast, one on the West Coast, and two one-day conferences. And this is where innovative, seeker-driven, purpose-driven, emergent pastors go to hobnob and network together in conference on the, the, basically on the church market industry, if you would. And uh, there's a one-day conference coming up in uh, March in Chicago, and, um, well, uh, Andy Stanley and Craig Groeschel will be the headliners for that one-day meeting of the Catalyst folks, these innovative pastors. And here's the promo video put together by the Catalyst folks, and um, see if you can make heads or tails of this. What if? This is Andy Stanley speaking. What if? Hmm, deconstruction. What if there is a principle of momentum? A what? A principle of momentum? Where is the principle of momentum taught in the Bible, Andy? What about the principle of fidelity? That's actually taught in the scriptures. Momentum? No. Fidelity? Yes. What if there is a a formula to momentum? Uh, There's a formula for momentum? What if there is a dynamic that if you understood it and learned how to apply it, you could actually create momentum and you give glory to God, but God created the principle, right? Oh, so God's created a principle that you've discovered that's not in Scripture about how churches can apply the principles of momentum to get momentum. Huh? Where is this taught in the Bible? It's not a non-God Holy Spirit thing. This is what... Oh, yes, it is. It's, it's completely contrary to Sola Scriptura thing. But if there is a, what if there's commonality to all momentum and we figured out what that was and we said, okay, here is the key to momentum. Would that be valuable? Oh, yeah. Why do I feel like you're selling snake oil? Dressed up in corporate business garb. The reason many people don't have um, spiritual momentum is because you don't have any time to reflect. You, you- oh, that's okay. We can, you know, we'll take Pete Spe- Scazzaro's Trappist mysticism and use that for reflection. You don't have any time just to just to think. Now, I'm not even talking about praying, but I'm talking about thinking. You don't have time just to... to- Did I mention that Doug Paget personally handpicked uh, Andy Stanley and Craig Rochelle to be part of the early emergent conversations? Did I? Did you catch that in my interview with Doug Panchett? Breathe before you come home and your kids are all over you. You don't have time to process what's going on. You don't have time to step back from the church and not work in it, but work on it and just step back and just observe. You don't have- ah, okay. Business principle, by the way. Uh, notice that. I have an MBA from Pepperdine University. When he said, you don't have time, you're stuck working in the church rather than working on it. That's business leader talk. Managers, one of the things that causes managers to fail in leadership is that many times they get caught up working in the business rather than working on the business. The, per, the job of a manager, the job of a, of a corporate leader is to work on the business and not get caught up in the day-to-day job of working in the business. By the way, uh, they, they, one of the things they've been talking about on CBS is that, uh, is that they have uh, a new reality TV show coming out after the Super Bowl on CBS where the CEOs of major corporations end up going to work inside of the corporations to see how things are going 
And so when they're working in the organization, they're not working on it. But see, this is here's the deal. Where in the scriptures does it say a pastor is supposed to be working on the organization rather than working in it? Pastors actually have been given a very specific set of job functions and duties. They are shepherds. They are to feed God's sheep, God's word, and and the sacraments. They are to preach the word, give careful instruction in sound doctrine, and rebuke and refute those who contradict it. Those are the job. That's the job of the pastor. And the job, the pastor is to, that's the primary function whereby discipling takes place. These guys have turned, uh, these guys have turned pastors into CEOs. And as a result of it, they've abandoned their biblical job duties. And that's why we're getting these conferences to talk about the church market industry and talk about these leaders who are burnt out because they're they're, they're not working. They're stuck working in the organization than working on the organization. Have time to um, to enjoy it. You, you, you know, some of you, you're in the middle of the ride of your life and you haven't taken a, a step back and gone, you know what, God, thanks for letting me be on this ride. Woo, this was awesome. Let, let's celebrate the wins because you're so busy in the war. Celebrating the wins, again, is another MBA-level management principle that's, uh, that's part of good management, San- celebrating wins. I, I would argue create these deadlines, stick to them, and watch as God does something significant. All right, now mandatory guitar solo. country that I respect and admire more and value wise sometimes i feel like i'm looking in the mirror when i hear your values but operationally our gifts are different and so that that's what i'd say for you don't go say well andy does it so i'm doing wednesday and thursday and plan three weeks on advance or craig does it you, know, you got to re- do what's a reflection of the way god wired you and your team you know you your team might quit if i if you did doing what i do and uh you know and it's, you know, it's the culture of your team and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, culture of your team, organizational behavior talk here. Again, these guys have spliced in corporate Fortune 500 CEO DNA into uh, pastors, and uh, that's not what they're called to be. They're called to be shepherds, not CEOs or cattle herders. Um, listen to Andy Stanley's uh, next quip. When we fall in love with anything that has to do with our organization, short of God's vision and mission. Short of what? Oh, yeah, that's right. You don't know what that means. Uh, if you don't know what he's talking about, short of God's mission and vision, remember, the purpose-driven movement teaches pastors that they can get a direct revelation from God, also known as the vision. And the vision that they get from God is going to show them what God wants to do in their churches and and what he how he wants to grow their churches. But they, first of all, have to prepare to receive the vision. And then when they receive the vision, they have to they have to get everybody behind the vision. And anybody who contradicts the vision is actually contradicting God himself. So that's what he's talking about. Mission and vision. This is a direct revelation from God for what he wants to do with your church. The tendency is to keep it around too long, not because of the function, because originally because of function, it was a good decision, but because it becomes emotional. We've fallen in love and our churches, and I'm not talking about our parents' churches, our churches, my churches, over time, all of us have couches we have got to get rid of because we believe we're doing what we're doing because God's called us to do it. We all believe eternity is at stake and we don't have enough time to fall in love with couches. So he's talking about the need for removing couches and how you need to be open to change of couches. Yeah, the kind of the furniture of your ministry, if you would. Need to go. 
All right, enough of that. So can you make any – I mean, seriously, I mean, um, aside from the nominal God talk in there, I mean, what's what's Christian or biblical about any of the things that you've heard? Nothing. What's the purpose of these conferences? To basically give a CEO uh, market, uh, market-driven market church, in, market-driven industry pep talk to other CEOs and uh, and wannabe CEOs in corporate – uh, in corporate churchdom, and they're speaking in corporate CEO-like language about things that don't even doesn't even vaguely sound like Christianity. Anyway, it's just like you know, would love to get your feedback on it. What do you think of that that little tidbit from the uh, seeker-driven emergent church from the two two guys who were actually handpicked by Doug Paget? Um, <laughs> Yeah, that's how they became church leaders. They were picked by Doug Padgett. They were innovative church leaders who were asked to be at the table uh, in the early uh, emergent conversations. <sighs> Doug Padgett himself said that. All right. Um, <laughs> moving along, moving along. It's time for our uh, sermon review. faith we are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermon comes to us by uh, pastor stephen parks of university hills lutheran church in denver colorado uh, pastor parks uh, the sermon is entitled uh, do not fear only believed and it is based upon mark chapter 5 verses 21 through 43 we will be reading that shortly here Pastor Parks is a regular guest on the Issues Etc. radio program. He used to work at the Christian Research Institute. That's right, he worked with Hank Hanegraaff there. And, and uh, while there, he made the transition to uh, from generic evangelicalism to actually becoming a confessional Lutheran. This is a well-read guy. What are you listening for? Proper distinction of law and gospel? How is he using the scripture? And is he point what's the problem he's pointing out? And is he pointing us to Jesus Christ and him crucified for our sins as the solution to that problem? Or is he giving you a list of three applications and uh, five Hail Marys that you need to do in order to please God? Somehow I don't think that's what Pastor Parks is going to do, but going to kill the music. So without any further ado, before we dive into the sermon itself proper, it's important, and mucho importante, that I actually read the text that forms the basis of this sermon to you, because uh, when we do a Lutheran sermon, the Lutheran guys, uh, this, the sermon text is actually read prior to the sermon. There's an Old Testament reading, an epistle reading, and a gospel reading. So the gospel reading is Mark chapter 21, I mean, 5, verses 21 through 43. We read, And when Jesus had crossed again 
in the boat to the other side. A great crowd gathered around him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at Jesus' feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and alive. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians uh, and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself Uh, that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched me? Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing uh, what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except for Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered in, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years old. And uh, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the text that forms the basis of this particular sermon by Pastor Stephen Parks, entitled, Do Not Fear, Only Believe. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Heavenly Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. My dear friends in Christ, in the late 70s when I was growing up, there was a popular television show, at least popular amongst kids, called Land of the Lost. And uh, it's a show that perhaps some of you watched as you were children or maybe even as adults. And it's one that even now is uh, popular enough that they decided to make a movie about it starring Will Ferrell. But I was obsessed with the show as a child. I loved the land of the lost and all the dinosaurs and the giant insects and the aliens and everything else that inhabited the land of the lost. And of course, I knew that the land of the lost was simply a television show and that you couldn't actually get there. But I also knew that there was a time when dinosaurs and such things did roam the earth. And so I did what any level-headed five-year-old would do. I decided that I was going to build a time machine. And so I gathered together my red wagon, 
I gathered together as many aluminum cans as I could, a broom, a rake, any other accoutrements I could find. I'm sure it must have ruined some bed sheets in there at some point. And I built this time machine. And I went inside the time machine, and I trusted with all my heart that this thing was going to work. And I just knew that when I was going to draw that bed curtain aside, there I would be back in prehistoric times, surrounded by the dinosaurs that I longed to see in person. But of course it didn't work. My faith, you see, was misplaced. I had faith. I had all the trust in the world that this time machine that I had built was going to deliver me back in time. But you see, my faith, my trust, my belief was misplaced. This is precisely the lesson that the Holy Scriptures teach us in this morning's Gospel reading. It is, in fact, possible to have faith, to place your faith in any number of things, but yet, nevertheless, it teaches us the important thing is that we place our faith in the correct object, namely, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, now notice, he used a relevant example, talking about the land of the lost, talk about pop culture. I mean, yeah, but notice here that the uh, relevant example that he gave served to illustrate something in the text. And he wants to point us in the text to the fact that the object of our faith really is the thing that matters. What is your faith in? And he's pointing us to Jesus Christ as the proper object of our faith. Norman Nagel used to talk about it this way. Uh, faith is like eyesight. It's like eyeballs. You, you, without a mirror, you cannot see your eyeballs. Okay, therefore, faith is, is is like eyesight and eyeballs. Whatever you put your eyesight on and transfix your gaze on, that's the thing that you that is the object of your faith. So faith is a pass through to the thing that in which you are actually hoping we continue. The text begins in Mark chapter five. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers to the synagogue of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. As I said, it has been said many times, not only by me, but by others, that faith is only as good as the object in which it is placed. Faith, we know, is a biblical synonym for the word trust. Outside of placing faith in worthy objects of faith, of trusting one who can truly help, faith itself really is worthless. You see, lots of people have lots of faith in lots of different things. They may have faith or trust in themselves. They may trust in their own gifts or their own abilities or even their own strengths. They may trust in their money or their jobs. They may even trust in many other gods, false gods. And yet none of these are worthy objects of faith. None are worthy of true trust. Since none of them in the final analysis are able to help or to save us eternally. But you see in this morning's gospel narrative... We see Jairus places great faith in the only one truly worthy of trust, Jesus. Jairus, we're told, is a ruler of the synagogue. 
And for religious and political reasons, many rulers of the synagogues tended to associate or affiliate themselves with the Pharisees, or sometimes the Sadducees, those who were looked up to in the religious society at that time. Yet this man comes to one who isn't quite as well esteemed among the people. This man, Jairus, comes to one who isn't received by the Pharisees or the Sadducees or any of the other religious rulers of the day. But instead he comes to one, the only one, in fact, who can help and save his daughter from certain doom. My little daughter is at the point of death, Jairus says. Come and lay your hands on her that she may be made well and live. You see, Jairus knows that Jesus can help his daughter. And he trusts that despite perhaps political and religious alliances, which he has made in the past, that this Jesus, whom he has heard so much about, is indeed merciful and is both willing and able to help. Jairus, you see, has the proper object of faith. And in this moment of crisis, he knows just who to turn to for help and for aid. Times of crisis. These are the times that tend to reveal who or what we trust in most. Think back to your last crisis. To whom did you turn first? Did you first go to yourself to think or struggle your way out of your problem? Did you first go to someone else, perhaps a spouse, a friend, or even a parent? Now, what is he? What, what sin is he getting at? First commandment, shall have no other gods before me. You shall fear, love, and trust in God above all things. So this little sermon up at this point is laying bare and attacking sins of idolatry. Trusting in self or other things above God. And what's the, what's the indicator that you're, in, you're committing the sin of idolatry? In times of crisis, where do you first go for help? Wow. In order to gain comfort. Did you go right to Jesus? Or was he instead an afterthought, just one step perhaps among many, in an effort to be comforted? Jairus knows that nobody can help like Jesus can, so he goes right to the Savior himself. And in so doing, Jairus reminds us, too, of who we should, to whom we should flee for comfort, aid, and help in times of crisis and need. And here, of course, you might expect a sermon about having faith like that of Jairus, but you see, that really misses the point entirely. Jairus' faith belonged to Jairus and not you. Oh, this is a great point. No, we're not called to have faith like Jairus. But we're called to have the same object of faith. Woohoo! <laughs> Great point. Now, that's just brilliant. Okay, how many times have you languished under a terrible sermon where somebody, you need to have the faith of so and so or the dare to be a whatever or dare to, dare to be a Daniel? Oh, that's just miserable. I'm not Daniel. I'm not David. I'm not Abraham. I'm Chris. I'm the overweight fat theologian from uh, you know that lives in the Midwest, you know that has a radio show on Pirate Christian Radio. I don't have the faith of so and so. 
but I have the same object of my faith. For I chose to know nothing except for Christ and Him crucified. My eyes are transfixed on Christ. Just like Abraham, just like David, just like Moses, just like... I, I have the exact same object of my faith. It's Jesus Christ. And your faith is only as good as the object of your faith. This is just brilliant. As Jairus, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the same Lord. We have the same Savior. We have the same Redeemer as Jairus. And this is the point of the text. The merciful one, the one who is both able and willing to help Jesus, he is yours to call upon, just as Jairus called upon him. And so we're told Jesus goes with Jairus, but something happens before they arrive at his home. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to them, Him, you see that the crowd is pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he look, looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now here, of course, we have a very interesting story, to say the least. Jesus is on his way to help Jairus' daughter. But along the way, the crowd is pressing in on him. And a woman who has had a sickness for over a decade approaches Jesus. You see, here is a woman who has placed her faith, her trust in many people in the past. She trusted in physicians who were finally completely unable to help her, in fact, who only made her worse. She blew all of her money and savings on those who could do nothing for her. But here and now, she places her faith, she places her trust in its proper object, Jesus. So she walks up to him in the crowd and touches him secretly. But why secretly? Because, as the text tells us, her specific problem was, as it says, a flow of blood. And as such, she was perpetually considered unclean, cut off from worship in the temple, cut off from fellowship with God and the way in which he prescribed in the Old Testament, cut off from fellowship with the other saints of God, his people. She was, for all intents and purposes, a bit of an outcast, and as such... And touching Jesus, it would have been seen as an outrage and perhaps even risked making him, the teacher, the rabbi, the master, himself unclean. Okay, i got to point something out here. Now, what, how was he getting all this information? This is part of what's called the historical grammatical method of interpreting the Bible, which, by the way, if you hold the sola scriptura, historical grammatical is the only valid way of interpreting the scriptures. 
What he's doing is he's giving us backstory about this woman, and he's gleaning this information from the Old Testament. This is why it's so important to understand the full counsel of God's Word and to know not just the New Testament, but also the Old Testament as well. And that part of your... Uh, part of your daily scripture reading involves Old Testament readings as well as New Testament readings. And not only that, in, be in the Psalms too. You know, because what that does is when you really begin to see the full picture of God's word in context, you're able to understand some of the subtle nuances that are lost if you're if you don't understand the backstory. So he's giving us backstory from the Old Testament about how this woman is declared to be unclean and giving and basically giving us why it is that she's secretly trying to snatch away a, a healing at this point. When you understand that backstory, which is all found in the Old Testament, now the story starts to come to life. And so she sneaks up behind Jesus, and she touches, not him, but his garment, hoping against hope, trusting that this man, unlike all the others she had placed her faith in before, could actually do something to help her. But as we said, she doesn't even dare touch the Savior himself, only his garment. That, she knows, will be enough. And sure enough, as the narrative tells us, she's healed. And Jesus immediately seeks to draw attention to this woman. Who touched my garments, he says. You ever wonder why God in Scripture so frequently asks questions to which he already knows the answer? Recall, for example, in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve had sinned and were hiding from God, we're told, but the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? Now we know, of course, that God knows all things. He knew where Adam was, but he was calling him out. He was singling him out for a specific purpose. To confront him for his sin, but ultimately to forgive and to restore him. And likewise, here, God in human flesh, our Lord Jesus Christ, knows perfectly well who in the crowd touched him, but he singles out this woman for a specific purpose. To restore her, both in fellowship with God and with man. I want to point something out here that you may not be even paying attention to. Notice that there's a, a young child in the background kind of talking and chattering. This is a good sign, not a bad sign. What that means is, is that in Pastor Park's congregation, you're not segregated by age. That the young and the old alike come and hear the word of God together. Very important. Because one of the things a market-driven church does is it segregates everybody by age and age group and culture. This way of doing church unites everybody, regardless of age and culture. To point out that, in fact, she had been healed. She's clean now, free to worship God in the temple once again, and also free to fellowship with his people without restriction. But what's more, she's already in the presence of the living temple of God, Jesus Christ himself, and there she receives a blessing from God and is restored, made whole. Properly speaking, it wasn't just any kind of faith that made her well. 
She had faith in the doctors who she had been seeing, but again, to no avail. No, it was faith in the correct object, Jesus, which made her well. And in pointing out her healing, Jesus calls all those who are present and all who have read this narrative since to place their faith to trust in Him. The only worthy object of faith. The only one who can help and save eternally. And again, some might preach sermons on how you should have faith like this woman, but faith is worthless apart from the proper object. Don't strive to have faith like this woman, but instead have the same object of faith as this woman. Trust in Jesus, the same Savior in whom she trusted. Only He can offer true help. Only He can give lasting aid. Only He can help you here and now, but also and especially in eternity. It's Jesus and Jesus alone who is worthy of faith, worthy of trust, worthy of our belief. The doctors, of course, couldn't help this woman. The experts couldn't help her, but Jesus could. This is the true glory, my friends, of Christianity. Not the faith of the Christian, but rather the Christ in whom Christians trust. Uh, again, what, who's he pointing us to? Christ, Christ, Christ. Uh. Oh, this is great. He can help. He can deliver. He can save. And thus is worthy of trust and belief. And yet, despite this amazing story, the text reminds us of Jesus' original mission to help the daughter of Jairus. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? This child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in there where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. The time for helping Jairus' daughter, it would seem, had passed. The time for trusting Jesus had come and gone, or at least so it appeared. Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But you see, Jesus calls Jairus to trust in him. Do not fear, only believe. Believe what? Trust what? Have faith in what? That his daughter was not dead? No, but in fact that Jesus could still do something about it. Believe in me. Trust in me. Have faith in me, Jesus essentially says. Oh, I've got to point this out. Notice how this, the, the constant 
drum that he's beating is Jesus and pointing you to Jesus. And Jesus can fix it. Jesus can save you. Jesus can heal you. Jesus can take care of your problems. Trust in him, even in your hour of deepest, darkest need, even on your hour in which you were going to die. Look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. Jairus' faith could not restore his daughter to life, but Jesus could. And Jesus calls Jairus, just as he calls all of us, to trust in him. So he goes to Jairus' home and he sees the mourners. And in those days, believe me, mourners could really mourn. In fact, there were those who made an entire profession out of mourning. And so it was commonplace when somebody died to hire mourners who would come and stand outside your home to weep and to wail so that everybody would see just how beloved the person was who had passed away. And Jesus beholds this kind of weeping and wailing, and he asks, Why are you making such a commotion and weeping? This child is not dead, but sleeping. And of course, the people present laugh at Jesus. They mock him. In short, they don't believe in him. Now, they probably have some kind of faith, to be sure, but not faith in the one who matters, not faith in Jesus. And so Jesus shows them that their faith in whatever or whomever it may be placed is misplaced. And he demonstrates his power over sickness by healing the woman with the flow of blood and even over death and the grave with this little girl simply by speaking his word. Talitha kumi, little girl, I say to you, arise. And this precious little one This beloved daughter of Jairus arises and begins walking around. Jairus, you see, wasn't disappointed. He got the help that he sought, not because of his great faith, but because of the one in whom he trusted, Jesus. So let it be with us. Let us not trust in anything within us, not in our own strength or ability, not in our own gifts or talents, Not in our own obedience or righteousness, not even in our own faith, but rather let us trust in the object of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who has ransomed us from death and hell. He is the one who turned aside God's wrath by keeping the law perfectly in your place, in all of his thoughts, in all of his words, and in all of his deeds, being perfectly obedient to his Father for you, rendering the obedience that God demands. Jesus does it for you. He is the one who again turns aside God's wrath in his death as he takes upon himself the punishment for sin, which all of us richly deserve. The wages of sin is death, here and now and also in eternity. And Jesus takes upon himself that punishment, and he does it for you. And that same Savior, three days later, rises once again from the dead in order to prove that everything that he had done in his life and in his death had been accepted by the Father. That everything that he said was true, in short, That he is the one in whom to place your faith. He is the one in whom we trust. Not in ourselves. 
Not in others, and again, not even in our own faith, but rather in Christ, in Jesus. Because it's in Him that all the promises of God are yes and amen. The promise of eternal life, yes, is yours in Christ. The promise of forgiveness, yes, is yours in Christ. The promise of an eternity blessed in Him, yes, is yours in Christ. For his sake and in Jesus' name. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus until he comes again in glory. Amen. We all right. Man, that was all about <clears throat> Jesus. As a Christian sermon should be. Not about you and your changed life, not about God's ever-expanding concentric circles of inclusiveness, not about social justice, but about Christ, pointing you to him, the author, the perfecter, the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, died, crucified, buried, and risen for you. I can think of no better thing that any pastor should be preaching about than on that gospel message for believers as well as unbelievers. <clears throat> We're rapidly approaching the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. And if you have not joined the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew uh, in the month of January, it's time for you to do so. January is winding down. And uh, if you join the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew in the month of January, we have a, a generous anonymous donor who will triple your January uh, monthly uh, subscriber fees, if you would. It's a mere $6.95 a month. And so you're, uh, if you join the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew in the month of January, you have triple impact, if you would, financially. The way you join is by visiting fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button, and uh, at the very end there, pay attention. There's a button that will show you how to access our Pirate Cove, which is a growing treasure trove of theological resources designed to help you go deeper in God's Word, Christ-centered apologetics, and sound doctrine. <clears throat> Excuse me. Good stuff all there for you. Of course, if you'd like to uh, donate above and beyond, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it along to Post Office Box. 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Well, there you go. What'd you think of today's edition of Fighting for the Faith? We'd love to get your feedback. We'll be reading emails uh, on tomorrow's program and probably Thursdays as well. So uh, this would be a good time to send me your feedback. You can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Krishna. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for your sins. Amen. <laughs>